Well, brethren, let's once more seek the face of God for the help of the Holy Spirit in our time together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we would confess to you that we are so slow to truly believe your words that apart from you we can do nothing. But we would seek to own the truth of those words at the beginning of this hour together and turning away from all confidence in ourselves and seeking to draw afresh upon the life-giving power that flows out of your fullness into our hearts by the Holy Spirit to abide in you and to have your words abide in us and then to ask what we will, believing that you will hear and answer us. So we come asking that you would grant us your help, that we may know your upholding grace, your directing power, and your blessing upon our thinking together concerning these vital issues of what it is to be able ministers of the new covenant. Bless our time together, we plead, for your praise. Amen. Amen. Now in the first hour, brethren, uh, we began to consider the first axiom relative to all preaching. And it is this, that the proclamation, explanation, and application of scriptural truth in the power of the Holy Spirit, must constitute the heart and soul of all of our preaching. Having demonstrated the biblical taproots of this axiom, we're now dealing with some of its corollaries, and we had time to deal with only one of those corollaries in the previous hour. And it was this, that sermons ought to be thoroughly exegetical in their raw materials. And now we move at the beginning of this hour to the second of the corollaries of that first axiom that sermons ought to be predominantly biblical in their overall substance. In opening up this second corollary, I will explain what I mean by sermons being predominantly biblical in their overall substance, and then we'll seek to demonstrate what such preaching is by way of four major contrasts. Now, just a word of explanation. Some men, in seeking to be exegetical in their preaching, fall into the trap of spending excessive amount of time in the sermon itself with such things as grammatical analysis, detailed word studies and etymological borings and tunnel digging into the roots of words. In other words, too much of the initial work of study connected with careful exegesis is carried into the sermon itself. Others, while taking their raw materials from careful exegetical labor, spend too much time attempting to explain the Bible with novel or striking language of their own. Now, since the Bible itself is its own infallible interpreter, 
and contains the best confirmation and illustration of its truth, we should seek to have our sermons heavily interlaced with biblical texts, phrases, parallel passages, and illustrate and enforce the truth by the Bible itself. If we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, then surely the substance of our sermons ought to reflect this conviction. One of the finest statements of this corollary is found in Murphy's Pastoral Theology, and I want to read a portion of that section from pages 156 and 157. The matter of all true preaching is to be found in the Bible, and out of its sacred pages the mind of the Spirit is to be searched and then delivered from the pulpit. Every sermon should be carefully wrought out from the text. Every point advanced should be proved by a thus saith the Lord. Passages bearing on the subject in hand should be quoted, or at least their substance presented, and the whole discourse should be saturated with the word of God. This adherence to the scriptures should not be merely incidental, but it should be studiously aimed at. The Bible should be made the substance of all preaching. Not only the matter of preaching, but the manner of presenting the truth also should be guided by the inspired pages. From this sacred storehouse, illustration should be gathered, its imagery and sublime utterances should be used, and its poetry should adorn the preacher's words. The whole discourse should be animated and impressed by the spirit of the holy oracles. The truths of the Bible should be preached just as they are found upon its pages. The whole of the divine word should be presented. None of it should be intentionally kept back. There need be no fear of preaching at all. The grand rule of the preacher should be to search out the mind of God as revealed in the sacred pages and then simply to publish it to his fellow men. And for a striking illustration of what that means in the concrete reality of preaching a sermon, I've given you a quote from Brooks, volume 4, in which making this point, secondly, a holy heart knows that little sins have exposed both sinners and saints to very great punishments. That's his point. Little sins result in great punishments. Now listen to how much Bible is packed into one paragraph. A gracious soul remembers the man that was stoned to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. He remembers how Saul lost two kingdoms at once, his own kingdom and the kingdom of heaven for sparing of Agag and the fat of the cattle. He remembers how the unprofitable servant for non-improvement of his talent was cast into outer darkness. He remembers how Ananias and Sapphira were stricken suddenly dead for telling a lie. He remembers how Lot's wife, for a look of curiosity, was turned into a pillar of salt. He remembers how Adam was cast out of paradise for eating an apple, 
We don't know it was an apple. And the angels cast out of heaven for not keeping their standings. He remembers that Jacob smarted for his lying to his dying day. He remembers how God followed him with sorrow upon sorrow and breach upon breach, filling up his days with grief and trouble. He remembers how Moses was shut out of the Holy Land because he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. He remembers that young prophet who was slain by a lion for eating a little bread and drinking a little water, contrary to the command of God, though he was drawn thereunto by an old prophet under the pretense of a revelation from heaven. He remembers how Zacharias was stricken both dumb and deaf because he believed not the report of the angel Gabriel. He remembers how Uzzah was stricken dead for staying the ark when it was in danger to have fallen. Yes, he can never forget the 50,000 men of Beth Shemesh who were slain for looking into the ark. Now, ah, how doth the remembrance of these things stir up the hatred and indignation of a gracious soul against the least sins. A dram of poison diffuses itself to all the parts till it strangles the vital spirits and separates the soul from the body. A little coal of fire has turned many a stately fabric into ashes. A little prick with a thorn may as well kill a man as a cut with a drawn sword. A little fly may spoil all the alabaster box of ointment. Three or four analogies from nature at the end, but twelve different scriptural analogies. Boom, 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 boom until you feel overwhelmed by the reality. This is preaching the Bible with the Bible, illustrating the Bible by the Bible. And this is what I mean when I assert as the second corollary of this first axiom that your sermons ought to be predominantly biblical in their overall substance. And such preaching will stand out in bold contrast with several things. Number one, anecdotal preaching. This is preaching in which stories or contrived or true are the main manner of explaining and illustrating and enforcing biblical truth. Now, one of the axioms I hope to address before the week is out deals with the matter of illustrative devices. And while it is true that the best preaching is usually that preaching that has a proper use of illustration, figures of speech, metaphor, simile, parable. When five or seven minutes are taken up with a story, followed by two or three minutes of explaining the words of Scripture, and then another four or five minutes taken up with another story, this becomes anecdotal preaching and not biblical preaching. And so I'm going to give you an anecdote. For some five years, I was engaged in an itinerant ministry, supposedly as an evangelist. And it was very interesting. More than once, after being somewhere for several days, people would come to me and say, you're not an evangelist. You're a Bible teacher. 
And I would say, well, I'm not an evangelist. Have I not opened up the scriptures that point to man's sin and to God's provision for sinners in the person and work of Christ? Have I not earnestly pleaded with people to repent? And Oh, yeah, you did all, but, but you're not an evangelist. The whole concept of an evangelist was the guy who quoted a text and then told you a bunch of stories, quoted another text, and told you a bunch of stories. And the whole concept, you see, of expounding the word and letting Letting the word explain the word was foreign to their thinking. If our preaching, as this second corollary is asserting, is fundamentally biblical preaching, the Bible is the main substance of our preaching, it will be in direct contrast to anecdotal preaching, but also, secondly, to biographical preaching. This is preaching in which the personal experiences of the preacher predominate. This is the very thing Paul said he eschewed. We preach not ourselves. Yes, we do preach out of ourselves, but we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. I was very humbled, and I'm going to give you now some biography. When a man called me some years ago and said, Pastor Martin, I think I've listened to well over 200 of your sermons, but I have a problem. I said, what's that? He said, I don't know much about you. Do you have a testimony that you can have on tape that you can send to me? I'd like to learn more about you. That was a wonderful compliment that he listened to 200 sermons and knew very little about me. Now, can people say that about you? Some preachers are constantly giving you the latest event in their family life, in their personal life. And while those things have a place in, in, in a very restrained way, biblical preaching will not be biographical preaching in which you are constantly laying out stuff out of the crucible of your own life and experience. And then thirdly, it will be in contrast to strong imaginative preaching. By this phrase, I mean the kind of preaching in which a fertile and active mind does so much to embellish and add to the statements of Scripture that one is left with far more of the fruit of the preacher's active mind than of the naked testimony of the Word of God. This abuse of the noble faculty of imagination is found particularly in preaching biblical narrative. It is said that in preaching biblical narrative, you've got to expound the white spaces. But it's one thing to do some legitimate, imaginative expounding of the white spaces and to fill them up with stuff that goes far beyond the warrant of Scripture. I've heard preachers say, and when David, uh, when Nathan told the parable to David, then he stuck his bony finger under Nathan. How do you know he had a bony? He may have had fat little hands. And he looked at him with this burning eye and said, Thou art the man. How do you know that he had a burning eye and bony fingers? No, God doesn't need that kind of embellishment that is rooted in an overly fertile imagination. And then it will be in direct contrast to what I've identified as literary preaching. And by this, I mean preaching which is either the unwise and the injudicious activity of a mind well furnished with broad reading, 
or a small mind seeking to give the impression of being well-read. It can be one or the other. Such an abuse of human helps will find expression in excessive quoting. It will leave the impression on the minds of our hearers that human authors are more important and carry more weight in interpreting the Bible than does the divine author himself who interprets his word in one place by his word in another place. And then it will be in contrast to what I'm calling philosophical preaching. And by this I mean preaching that expresses biblical realities and biblical truth, but does not demonstrate the specific data from the Bible on which the statements rest and from which they are drawn. Under such preaching, God's truth may be presented, presented lucidly and powerfully. However, because the foundation in Scripture is out of sight, the hearers will not become well-grounded And those who may oppose what the preacher is asserting will find it much easier to dismiss it and say, I don't agree with the preacher because they haven't been confronted with the pure word of God. Now, many of you know that the late Dr. A.W. Tozer was called a 20th century prophet, lowercase p. And he had tremendous insights and saw through so much of the claptrap and shallowness of the contemporary evangelicalism in which he lived and ministered. But there are times when I've listened to whole blocks of his sermons and I found myself disturbed that while again and again he was articulating biblical truth, he was not laying bare before my mind those specific texts upon which That truth is based. And that can be philosophical preaching. That's what I mean by philosophical preaching. In summary, may God grant that none of you men will ever fall into the snare of preaching that is predominantly anecdotal, biographical, imaginative, literary, or philosophical. Whatever legitimate elements of these things may be present in your ministry and mine, And to whatever degree we may have an aptitude to develop one or more of these aspects that are legitimate in their place in preaching, that people sitting under our ministry will go away saying, listen to that man and you get Bible 16 ounces to the pound week after week, month after month, year after year. In considering our discussion of this second corollary, I can perhaps do no better than welcome C.H. Spurgeon into the lecture room and have him speak to us as he did to his students. This is what he said to them. Sound information upon scriptural subjects your hearers crave for and they must have. Accurate explanations of Holy Scripture they are entitled to And if you are an interpreter, one of a thousand, a real messenger of heaven, you will yield them plenteously. Whatever else may be present, the absence of edifying, instructive truth 
like the absence of flour from bread, will be fatal. Estimated by their solid contents rather than their superficial area, many sermons are very poor specimens of godly discourse. I believe the remark is too well grounded that if you attend to a lecturer on astronomy or geology during a short course, you will obtain a tolerably clear view of his system. But if you listen not only for 12 months but for 12 years to the common run of preachers, you will not arrive at anything like an idea of their system of theology. And if this is so, it is a grievous fault. And then again, we can listen to the perceptive insights of Dabney on this point in his lectures on sacred rhetoric. He gives a little historic resume of the Reformation being a revival of gospel preaching and how this was true in Germany, Switzerland, England, Scotland. These men, though they had many differences, they were expositors of the word of God. And then he goes on to say this summary statement, we may assume with safety that the instrumentality to which the spiritual power of that great revolution, that is the Reformation, was mainly due was the restoration of scriptural preaching. You will not suppose, young gentlemen, young and old gentlemen here, that I intend this perfunctory sketch as an intrusion into the field of history. My purpose is only to recall to your mind such an outline of facts as will prepare you to understand the preacher's warrant and function. This review even will convince you that the state of the pulpit may always be taken as an index of that of the church. Whenever the pulpit is evangelical, and by that he meant was thoroughly biblical, the piety of the people is in some degree healthy. A perversion of the pulpit is followed by spiritual apostasy in the church. And it's exceedingly instructive to note that there are three stages through which preaching has repeatedly passed with the same results. The first is that in which scriptural truth is faithfully presented in scriptural garb. Scriptural truth is presented in scriptural garb. That is to say, not only are all the doctrines asserted which truly belong to the revealed system of redemption, but they are presented in that dress and connection in which the Holy Spirit has presented them without seeking any other from human science. This state of the pulpit marks the golden age of the church. The second is the transition stage. In this, the doctrines taught are still those of the Scripture, but their relations are molded into conformity with the prevalent human dialectics. We've got to be relevant. People don't know their Bibles, therefore we can't talk in Bible language because they don't understand it. We'll talk Bible truth in contemporary linguistic forms. That's the second stage. Where does that lead to? In this, the doctrines taught are still those of the Scripture, but they're molded into conformity with the prevalent human dialectics. God's truth is now shorn of a part of its power over the soul. The third stage is then near, in which not only 
Are the methods and explanations conformed to the philosophy of the day, but the doctrines themselves contradict the word of God? Brethren, that's sadly, sadly true. And we must determine that by the grace of God, our preaching will be substantially biblical, explaining the Bible with the Bible, illustrating the Bible by the Bible. And then thirdly, your sermons, this is our third corollary, your sermons will be theologically vigorous and harmonious in their statements of truth. If we are committed to preaching the Bible as the Bible ought to be preached, then those sermons we preach will be theologically vigorous and harmonious in their statements of truth. Now, in opening up this corollary, let me explain the words and then show some contrast to what I mean. God's truth comes to us in the form of what Scripture says, sound or healthy words. And there is a beautiful and delicate and vital relationship between all the facets of God's truth. Each revealed truth sustains an organic relationship to other truths. There is mutual support, balance, and harmony. If this is so, and I believe it is, then our preaching, if truly biblical preaching, and not a shallow biblicism, will seek to present that systematic and harmonious relationship one truth to another truth in the Scriptures. And so our preaching, then, will be theologically vigorous and harmonious in its statements of truth. Here, I urge you to listen again to Mr. Spurgeon. He writes in his lectures to his students, It's infamous to ascend your pulpit and pour over your people rivers of language, Cataracts of words in which mere platitudes are held in solution like infinitesimal grains of homeopathic medicine in an Atlantic of utterance. It will be a happy circumstance if you are so guided by the Holy Spirit as to give a clear testimony to all the doctrines which constitute or lie around the gospel. I love that terminology. They constitute or they lie around the gospel. No truth is to be kept back. The doctrine of reserve, so detestable in the mouths of Jesuits, is not one whit the less villainous when accepted by Protestants. It is not true that some doctrines are only for the initiated. There is nothing in the Bible which is ashamed of the light. I love that terminology. Nothing in the Bible ashamed of the light. The sublimest views of divine sovereignty have a practical bearing and are not, as some think, mere metaphysical subtleties. The distinctive utterances of Calvinism have their bearing upon everyday life and ordinary experience. And if you hold such views or the opposite, you have no dispensation permitting you to conceal your beliefs. Cautious reticence is, in nine cases out of ten, cowardly betrayal. The best policy is never to be politic, but to proclaim every atom of the truth so far as God has taught it to you. 
Harmony requires that the voice of one doctrine shall not drown out the rest, and it also demands that the gentler notes shall not be omitted because of the greater volume of other sounds. Every note appointed by the great minstrel must be sounded, each note having its own proportionate power and emphasis. The passage marked with forte must not be softened, and those with piano must not be rolled out like thunder, but each must have its due hearing, all revealed truth in harmonious proportion must be your theme. Brethren, what a high standard. But I trust that each of our hearts, hearing words like that, says, yes, Lord, that's the kind of ministry I desire to have. Listen to Lloyd-Jones addressing the same subject. If then I say that preaching must be theological, and yet that it is not lecturing on theology, what's the relationship between preaching and theology? I would put it like this that the preacher must have a grasp and a good grasp upon the whole biblical message, which is, of course, a unity. In other words, the preacher should be well-versed in biblical theology, which in turn leads on to a systematic theology. To me, there is nothing more important in a preacher than that he should have a systematic theology, that he should know it and be well-grounded in it. This systematic theology, this body of truth which is derived from Scripture should always be present as a background and as a controlling influence in his preaching. Each message which arises out of a particular text or statement of the Scripture must always be a part or an aspect of this total body of truth. It is never something in isolation never something separate or apart. The doctrine in a particular text, we must always remember, is a part of this greater whole, the truth or the faith. That's the meaning of the phrase comparing Scripture with Scripture. We must not deal with any text in isolation. All our preparation of a sermon should be controlled by this background of systematic theology. I call it the quality control upon the exegesis of any given passage. Our systematic theology that has been constructed out of biblical theology recognizing the the peculiar setting in redemptive history of any given passage, coming to our systematics. Our systematics are the quality control upon our exposition upon any given passage, or we shall be presenting a distortion and imbalance in our ministries. And so your sermons and mine will be theologically vigorous and harmonious in their statements of truth if indeed we are preaching the Bible biblically. Now such preaching that is theologically vigorous and harmonious will be in direct contrast to several kinds of preaching. I've called the first self-destructive preaching. A man may be so zealous to establish one truth that he destroys two or three others in the process. A man gets enamored with the sovereignty of God and then 
He can't stretch out his hands and with tears plead with sinners to turn to Christ without saying, but I know you can't turn unless God regenerates you. He's afraid to say, God commands you to repent. And in God's name I command you to repent. But you really can't repent, but you don't know it. No, that's, that's self-destructive proclamation. God does not need our fences around his truth, but we need to preach the truth conscious of the whole system of truth. Some come to an understanding of the blessed truth that Christ died to save his people. And they find then that they cannot freely preach that Christ comes to men in the gospel as a willing and an able Savior. And in Christ is a full salvation for everyone who will have it. I'll never forget preaching up in Canada some years ago. And I said this, because I knew there were some young Calvinists there who had some infected with hyperism. And I said, I'm going to flush him out tonight. And so when I came to my peroration at the end of the sermon, pleading with sinners, I said, Oh, sinners sitting here, Christ is yours if you will but have him. Christ is yours if you will but have him. Well, they made a beeline to me right after the sermon. They'd flushed them out. They said, Mr. Martin, I'm not sure we heard you correctly. You said tonight Christ is yours if you will have him. I said, yes, I did. Can you show me anything in the Bible that says that's not true? And we had a very interesting discussion. But you see, these fellows had gotten a distortion of the truth, had come into biblical particularism and felt that that somehow narrowed the, the uh, gate of, of pleading with sinners and inviting all to come. And so it will keep us from that kind of self-destructive preaching. It will keep us from imbalanced preaching. You all know that a tire that's a bit out of balance sitting in the garage causes no one ever any trouble, as long as there's no puncture in it. If you're out traveling 25 miles an hour, not much problem, but that very tire at 70 miles an hour that's out of balance can tear the front end of your car apart. And the same is true if people do not have a balanced, a theologically balanced perspective on God's truth that sooner or later that thing will turn upon them and be self-destructive. And Spurgeon again has a very helpful quote that's referenced in your notes. And then it will keep you from half-truth preaching. I remember the first time I read in Packer that a half-truth presented as a whole truth is a whole untruth. A half-truth presented as a whole truth is a whole untruth. We know that with regard to our blessed Lord. Is Jesus truly man? Yes. But if I preach that truth as though it were the whole truth, I'm a heretic. Jesus is truly God. God of gods. And if I just preach that and do not preach, he was as much a man as though he were not God, I'm a heretic. He is the theanthropic redeemer. He is the God-man. And so, as we preach in the framework of a clearly defined systematic theology, we will be kept from half-truth preaching. Now I must hurry on to the fourth corollary, and it is this. 
If our sermons are fundamentally biblical sermons suffused with the Bible, our sermons will be intensely practical in their overall thrust. Intensely practical. The purpose for which the scriptures were given is clearly stated in a passage such as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Scripture is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things were written for our sake upon whom the ends of the ages are come to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Therefore, all preaching that is biblical must manifest these realities in its overall thrust. Titus 1.1 says, It is the truth that is kata, according to godliness. It is truth that leads to godliness, that is aligned with godliness. We must not traffic in truth as the newscaster does in reporting the major events of the day. Though in any given sermon, the way we preach and the substance of that sermon may be such that nine-tenths of the time is taken up with establishing the issues and one-tenth with applying them. Other sermons, the ratio may be different, but... If our sermons are truly biblical, they must be intensely practical in their overall thrust. Our people must feel their pressure not only upon their noggins, but upon their consciences, upon their affections, and upon their wills. Such preaching will be in direct contrast to that which is merely informational. You view your task as injecting some facts into the heads of your people and your work is done. Or on the other end of the spectrum, exclusively emotional, a disruption or agitation of the feelings, or a merely rhetorical exercise, a dazzling of the eyes of the mind or a tickling of people's ears. If the Bible is being preached biblically, it cannot help but be preached practically. And here I want to give you a quote from Dabney in his lectures on preaching, the Preacher's Commission. He writes, I repeat that wherever there is no direct purpose in the speaker to educe action of will in his hearers, there is no proper oration. Very simple statement, very profound statement. Wherever there's no direct purpose in the speaker to educe action of will in his hearers, there is no proper oration. And if our sermons are indeed biblical sermons, the Bible being preached biblically, they will be intensely practical in their overall thrust. In our exposition, we tell them what they need to know And in our application, as we'll see more fully in another axiom, we tell them the so what in the light of the what. What must I know? So what in the light of what you've told me? Then we come to this fifth corollary, and it is this, that your sermon should be pervasively evangelical 
in their overall climate and flavor. Pervasively evangelical in their overall climate and flavor. Now, by the use of the term evangelical, I mean that the realities of the central saving acts of God in Christ, those things that form the heart of the evangel, will flavor our sermons regardless of their precise focus. The grand indicatives of grace will percolate through our sermons. We will never be more delighted than when we're giving our people the indicatives of God's grace. And since we are called upon to preach the whole counsel of God, and since Christ is the grand focal point of that counsel, Christ and him crucified will constitute the climate and determine the flavor of our preaching. And I've used those words deliberately. Climate and flavor. Even where Christ is not the explicit focus, for he is not the explicit focus of every text of Scripture. I get irritated when some of these redemptive historical People are telling about Christological preaching and they take Luke 24, 25 and following and the passage later on in the chapter and Christ there with the two on the road to Emmaus and then with his disciples shows them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. It doesn't say in each and every one of the scriptures. It says in all the scriptures, in the Psalms and in the prophets, in the historical books, There are passages that speak clearly of him and there are themes that transcend a specific passage. As our brother Bart has been preaching through Samuel in Kings, you find that motif of longing for a final righteous king. You see one king after another who seems to be a righteous king and then he falls and everything. And he says, oh God, bring the true king. Bring the true king. And Christ is preached in that way thematically. I understand that. But the point I'm making without in any way being sympathetic to what I regard to be an aberration. I believe it is much a sin to put Christ in a passage where God didn't put him as it is to miss him where God did put him. Preach Christ where God put him. God knows best where to put him in his word. And where to discover where God has put him. But that qualification notwithstanding, is it not true that Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, determined to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and him as crucified? And if someone says, Ah, yes, but that was his initial coming as an evangelist. Well, was that so? When you pick up 1 Corinthians, what fundamental problem does Paul address with the Corinthians, without planting the cross right smack in the middle of it. People of the house of Chloe have told me that you guys are lining up behind your favorite preachers. How does he deal with it? Is Christ divided? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? And when he's going to deal with that horrible problem of immorality, how does he deal with it? What do you not know? You have been bought with a price. Glorify God therefore in your body which is his 
1 Corinthians 7, when he's dealing with the tacky issues of slaves seeking freedom, etc., he says, you have been bought with a price. Be not the slaves of men. He comes into dealing with Christian liberty. He said, look, are you ready for the sake of throwing something down your throat or indulging in a given activity, ready to destroy the brother for whom Christ died? So you see, there is that evangelical flavor and climate to the entirety of his ministry, so that when Paul is summarizing his ministry among the Gentiles in Colossians chapter 1, 27 to 29, he can say, whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. That's what I mean. If our sermons are biblical... They will be pervasively evangelical in their overall climate and flavor. And even when we are pressing specific duties upon the people of God, we're going to press them the way the apostles pressed them. We're going to press them the way the scriptures pressed them in relationship to the great indicatives of God's grace to us in his beloved Son. Gardner Spring, in Power of the Pulpit, has a wonderful statement of this reality when he writes, Yes, this is the truth that gives the pulpit all of its power, its facts, its doctrines, its duties, its scrutinies, its rebukes, its invitations, its threatenings, its promises, its consolations, its motives, its worship, its ordinances, and more than all, its atoning Savior, himself the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is the truth that constitutes the power of the pulpit. I have determined to know nothing among you, says the great apostle, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The pulpit is powerless where the cross of Christ is not magnified. Christ must be the theme, the scope, the life, the soul of the pulpit. It may have its subtleties of philosophy, the attainments of accomplished literature, and the enticing words which man's wisdom teaches, but it has no powerful attraction of God's truth where Christ is wanting The preacher may not hope to see the strong cords of earth broken, the fetters of gold dissolved, or any of the fascinations of sin disturbed by which the spellbound mind is held in bondage until he throws around it the stronger attractions of redeeming love. Isn't that beautiful? Throw these stronger attractions of redeeming love. There's wondrous power in the pulpit, where the cross is lifted up and where instead of attracting men to himself, the minister of God would fain attract them to his and to their Savior. And now this sentence. What savors not of the cross of Christ belongs not to the work of a Christian minister. What savors not. That's what we're talking about again. Not just explicitly naming the name of Jesus in every paragraph, but the savor of the cross, the conditioning influence of Christ and Him crucified as a hallmark of our ministries. Our sermon should be pervasively evangelical 
in their overall climate. That being so, let me just touch quickly on the contrasting kinds of preaching. It will not be legitimately charged with being legalistic or moralistic preaching, preaching in which biblical duties are taught with no reference to their substance as expressions of the will of Christ, motives of obedience consisting in love and fear of Christ, or the power to obey as drawn from our union with Christ. No, legalistic, moralistic preaching will have no place in our pulpit or mere bland, didactic preaching. The great truths about the whole spectrum of revealed reality are taught. No reference to Christ, having preeminence in all things. Bland, didactic preaching, or mere sentimental preaching, touching stories that cause people to weep and sniffle, but nothing that brings them into contact again and again with his pre-incarnate glory, the marvel of the cradle, the cross, the open tomb, the ascension and the session at the right hand of the Father. And I've given you in your notes a list of readings that are so helpful, and I find it salutary to go back to them again and again to remind me of this great reality, this fifth corollary that my preaching must be pervasively evangelical in its overall climate and flavor. And then I close by just stating in a brief way why I inserted in that axiom the words, in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was an afterthought as I went back and reworked the lectures that somewhere in this unit that note had to be sounded And I've given you a reference there to two sermons I preached here at a pastor's conference some six or five years ago on the activity and agency of the Holy Spirit upon the preacher in the act of preaching. For at the end of the day, brethren, it is the Spirit's ministry to take any of our preaching and to make it effectual in the hearts of the people of God. May the Lord enable us then by His grace to embrace afresh our noble task of being preachers of the Word of God and that our preaching will, whatever else it may or may not be, be a proclamation, explanation, and application of scriptural truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in these ways, God will use us to call in His elect and build up His own into ever-increasing conformity to the Lord Jesus. Amen.